Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. If you would open your Bible to the book of Psalms once again, this morning we will contemplate Psalm 20. During the season of pandemic, we've been turning to the Psalms for comfort, these songs of the Psalter, these songs of God's people have revealed layers to us. Many of them contain words that are familiar to us. Many of them are, are, are at least passages that we have committed to memory, and yet now they make sense to us. They resonate with us in a way that they never have before. I think you'll find Psalm 20 is one of those psalms. So hear the word of the Lord, Psalm 20, to the choir master, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven and the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Father, we ask your blessing on the preaching of your word. We pray that this song would sing to us and reveal its meaning. In Christ's name, amen. I think one of the hardest things about living during this era of pandemic is the feeling of helplessness. For many of us, the thought of being on lockdown, having to stay home and not be able to go out, uh, if you're an introvert, that seemed like that was a completely doable thing, that you could endure this. But now, week after week after week, I think we're all longing for the restoration of the life that we once had, to renew those bonds of community that have been stretched so thin. And there's a sense that comes along with that of helplessness. Because we know that the circumstances may have changed, but, but life hasn't changed. That people continue to struggle to have needs, and yet the people you love are enduring those things apart from you. And that's hard. It's hard to feel so helpless, and as a result, we find ourselves relying more on more on uh, thoughts and prayers. There's not more that we can offer. There's, There's nothing I can do to bridge the distance and alleviate the suffering of those I love, so I keep them in my thoughts, and I pray for them, and I lift them up to God in a way that I never have before. 
At the same time, though, we live in a culture where that idea of thoughts and prayers is a synonym for doing nothing, for just passive acceptance. Uh, When there's suffering, when there's crises in the world, if we respond with just thoughts and prayers, people criticize and censure us as if those thoughts and prayers are meaningless, just a justification for our unwillingness to do anything. But Psalm 20 stands as a repudiation of that way of thinking. Psalm 20 is about the power of blessing. If you've ever performed publicly or competed, you know that when there's a group of people around gathered, an audience that is rooting for you, that is cheering you on, that there's a a power to that, there's an energy to that, and you can feel it. If you've ever run a race... I'm speaking hypothetically here because, of course, I've never run a race, but but I've been told and I've seen in the movies when you run a race and there are people on either side cheering you on, it, it puts a spring in your step and you want to run faster because you're not in it alone. You feel the hopes, the, the support of the people around you. I can attest to this fact that speaking to you here in this mostly empty sanctuary, it's not the same thing. It's not the same feeling as, as speaking to a, a packed sanctuary. There's an energy from that. There's a, an electricity in the room. You know what I mean. But honestly, that's nothing compared to the power of a blessing. Because in blessing, we are not just being rooted for. In blessing, we are being lifted up. Lifted up to the sight of God. In blessing others, we open our hearts to God. We open up our our wishes, our pleading on your behalf. There's two things I, I want for you. First of all, I want you to know that you are being prayed for, cared for, hoped for, blessed, and lifted up. The second thing, I want you to open your heart to pray for and wish for and to bless others so that by the power of blessing, we might reach one another across the social distance. And to do this, we need to know two things that Psalm 20 teaches us, that it shows us. The first one, we need to know what to want for one another. We need to know what to want for one another in order to lift one another up. Secondly, we need to know where what we want comes from. Where what we want comes from. So that's our outline. Simple as that. What we want and where what we want comes from. So what is it that we want for one another? What do we want for one another? If you look at the text of the psalm, you'll see that in the first two sections, the first five verses, there are six, we'll call them wishes, that are expressed in the form of blessing. And they're divided into two sections. As you can see in the text, the sections are are denoted by that selah between them. So verses 1, 2, and 3 are the first section. 
Selah, a rest, a pause. And then verses 4 and 5, the second section. Let's look at the first section first. In the first section, verses 1 through 3, there are three wishes that are expressed. And all three of them center around the idea of security. So if you look at verse 1, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the Lord of Jacob protect you. That wish, that blessing, that's about protection. Protection. That when those we care about and love are in danger, we call out to God in order to protect them, to build a a hedge around them, to guard them against trouble. Look at verse 2. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. So if verse 1 is protection, we could say verse 2 is assistance. So don't just protect this, but help us. Give us assistance. Lift us up. Give us support. And then verse 3 is interesting. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. This is more complicated. So first we had protection, then we had assistance. Now what we have here is a covenant faithfulness reciprocated. In other words, the wish is that God will see your faithfulness, which is expressed here through sacrifices, and he will reward it, that he will be faithful to you just as you have been faithful to him. That's the wish. Protection, assistance, the reciprocation of covenant faithfulness, all of that connected to security giving us a sense of security. If you look at the second set of wishes, verses 4 and 5, here there's a little bit of a shift away from security towards the idea of flourishing. So if you look in verse 4, may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. Imagine finding those words in a psalm, in, in a song that we sing to God. I imagine some of you, if you think about your loved ones and their proclivities, might be reluctant to pray a blessing like this, that all your desires be fulfilled, that all your plans come to pass, knowing one another as we do, we would probably hedge it and say, may all your good desires be fulfilled, all your good plans come to pass. But here, there's something encouraging about the totality of it. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans without censorship, without qualification. Then look at verse 5. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. So here we've shifted to first person plural. Not may you, but may we may we shout for joy over your salvation. Salvation here in the fullest sense. So we're talking about the fulfillment of desire, the fulfillment of plans, salvation in its fullness. Salvation accomplished and applied and ultimately fulfilled. And may we rejoice in that. And that verse ends with incredible words. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. 
Everything you bring to him in prayer, everything you ask for him, may he grant it to you. May he do this for you. So that's what we want for one another. You might think of it as perseverance and prosperity. Security and flourishing. Not just protection, not just security, but also flourishing, also prosperity. And some of that may come as a surprise. Because of the horrific excesses of the so-called prosperity gospel. A lot of us are on our guard about language like this. We would never pray, may all the desires of your heart be granted. May all your plans come to pass. May God give you everything that you want. And yet, if you look at Psalm 20, those are the words of the blessing. Those are the words that are being sung. We cannot let false teaching take away from us the truth. We cannot ignore God's desire for human flourishing just because we're afraid that the words could be twisted. This is a very full and very beautiful statement of the desire that God has to fulfill the longings of your heart, to be a provider for you, not just of security, but also of comfort, of joy, of happiness, of flourishing. God wants all of this for you. Sometimes we convince ourselves that being good Calvinists means not wishing for anything. Being good Calvinists means just glumly praying, thy will be done. The implication being we know it'll be something bad, but we're willing to endure it because we believe that you are sovereign. But that's not good Calvinism. If anything, good Calvinism means believing that God has the power to do anything and to save anyone and calling on him to glorify his name by doing it, by actually showing his greatness, by manifesting that love. And that's how we ought to be. That's how our hearts ought to be tuned in accord with Psalm 20. There is no theological objection to wanting the security and the flourishing of everyone around you. In fact, you should burn for it. You should long for it. Because it is God's perfect plan for creation for human beings. There are a couple of fine points that I want you to keep in mind here in these first few verses. Uh, First of all, note that the power that we pray for comes from the name of God. It's the name of the God of Jacob that this power derives its its strength from. Also, note this. Where does the support come that we pray for? The support comes from his holy hill, Zion. If you've been paying attention as we've worked through the Psalms, you already know who is seated in Zion, God's holy hill. In Psalm 2, verse 6, as we saw, these words are spoken by the Father. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. We pray for help and support from Zion. We're praying for help and support from the the enthroned mount, the summit, where God has placed his king upon the earth. And also this, here's a 
an interesting fine point that comes from looking at the, the Hebrew that underlies these passages. When we say in verse 5 that we want to rejoice in your salvation, that word salvation in Hebrew is Yeshua, which is the word for Joshua, which is the name of Jesus. So literally, in our, our longing for salvation, there is a longing for Jesus built into the language. So in verse 5, what we see here is there's a suggestion that salvation, if you keep the the Joshua connection in mind, salvation is a kind of conquest. It's a kind of victory. It's a conquest over sin and death. And the idea of our banners being placed with God and God's name shows that the strength that wins that victory comes from God, not from armies. It's not a human power that wins the the victory in salvation, but rather the power that comes from the name of the Lord. All of that is there in these blessings. That's what we should want for one another. And the question is, where does this come from? If these are things we want for one another... We must know the source. Security and flourishing have a source. They come, according to Psalm 20, from God's anointed one. Security and flourishing come from God's anointed one. In other words, the triumph of the king means the triumph of his people. Here's another bit of Hebrew for you, looking now at verse 6. We read that God will save his anointed. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. Well, that word anointed is Mashiach, which is the word that Messiah comes from. The anointed one is the Messiah, or in Greek, the Christ. So there's a parallel here. We're talking about the salvation of the anointed one. The anointed one is the king. The one who has been anointed has been anointed in order to wear the crown. So God here is saving the king. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. I know that the Lord saves his king. He will answer him. He will answer his king from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. When you read these words, you see that the salvation of the anointed is also the salvation of his people. The reason why we cry out and and find comfort in the knowledge that God will save his anointed is that in saving his anointed, he saves all his people. The resurrection of Christ, which is the capstone of that triumph, is a hope for us because it promises that we too will be raised in the raising and the resurrection of Christ, we too find life. Which means that the security and the flourishing that we want for one another comes from the victory of Christ. Finds its origin in the victory of Jesus. Probably the most famous verse here in uh, Psalm 20 is verse 7. 
Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So you can see this echoes the sentiment in verse 5 having to do with the banners. In the name of of our God, we set up our banners. Here it's stated more explicitly, some trust in chariots and some in horses. These are uh, sources of military strength. The Egyptians have chariots, they have horses, they trust in those things, but we don't. Instead, we trust in a different power. We trust in the power of the name of our Lord. Here's another instance where, if you understand the original Hebrew, you get a little bit of an added layer because we brought up already the idea of covenant faithfulness, and this verse actually speaks to that idea. So let me give you not an elegant, but a literal translation of the Hebrew. If we were going to translate this verse woodenly, verse 7, it would read something like this. These in chariots and these in horses, but we, the name of Yahweh, our God, will remember. Remember. The word there, remember, it's the same word that we saw earlier in verse 3, zakar in the Hebrew, to remember. This idea of remembering has a special resonance. When you encounter the word remember, especially when it's used in reference to God, don't think what the Bible is saying is something like, well, God had forgotten, but then he remembered. Suddenly it came to his mind, God is omniscient, things don't come to his mind. He doesn't forget things. He knows everything. When Scripture uses this language of memory, it's referring to covenant faithfulness. You'll see this if you take a look at a couple of passages. If you turn your Bible to Genesis chapter 9, Genesis chapter 9, dealing with Noah, the Noahic covenant, you look in verses 14 and 15, this is where God is giving the sign of this covenant relationship, which is the the bow, the rainbow that he sets in the sky. You read these words, when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. God doesn't set the bow in the sky because he's preoccupied. And he wants to be sure not to forget he's made this commitment. He gives it as a sign to us, because we're the ones who tend to forget. God, in remembering, is talking about his tenacious fidelity to his covenant. If you turn to Exodus chapter 2, in verse 24, this is when God's people have gone into bondage in Egypt and they cry out looking for deliverance. Verse 24, you read, And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So specifically, the, the, the connection is memory and covenant. God remembers his covenant. He remembers his promise. You see this again if you turn to Leviticus chapter 26. In fact, you'll see it in many different cases. I've just chosen three to illustrate it. In Leviticus 26, 42, if the people repent, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. 
So what we're really saying in verse 7 is something like this. Instead of trusting to chariots and horses, instead of trusting to military strength, to political power for security, we trust in the covenant promises of God. The name of God we remember. That's the source of our strength. That point's reinforced in verse 8, in the next verse. And again, the Hebrew gives us a little bit of insight. In English, this is translated uh, collapsed. They have collapsed and fallen. They collapse and fall. But in the Hebrew, literally, the word translated collapsed means bowed down. They have bowed down and fallen. Which you can relate to. If you're not accustomed to bowing down, Sometimes when you go down, you can't get back up. Sometimes you go down farther than you were intending to go. Occasionally, you've been down and you fall to the floor, and that's what happens in idolatry because the idols that we bow down to have no power to lift us up. If we trust in any other name but the name of God, we will fall. The name of false gods has no power to save. But God has raised us up, as he raised Christ up. And we stand upright because we worship the true God as human beings were made to do. Which brings us to the conclusion in verse 9. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. But why God save the king? Why not God save us? Well, as we've already seen, in saving the king, God saves his people. Because through the king, we are all saved. Our security and our prosperity come from him. He gives them to us as gifts. When we bless the name of Jesus, in a manner of speaking, what we do when we bless his name is we lift him up to the Father. We pray to God that he would give Jesus every good thing that he has promised. We wish for him security and flourishing. And through his flourishing, we are blessed. Because we are in him, we are blessed. So what we've seen in Psalm 20 is that our wishes are really blessings. And those blessings are tied to God's covenant And those blessings are tied to Christ's kingship. And if you take all of that together and you ponder it, you'll realize something else. If we want security for you, if our wish for you, our blessing, is that you will have security and that you will flourish, then we want Yeshua for you. We want salvation for you. We want Jesus for you. And that is what we want for one another. That is why we cry out to him and we say, as the psalmist does, may he answer us when we call. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.